Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today we're talking legacy media versus independent media, Facebook and Twitter, the business of newsletters, all that with Charlie Warzel, now of The Atlantic and Galaxy Brain Writer. This is episode 27. From whether Facebook is good or evil, and why it's a lot more complicated than that, to the topic of nuance in the media generally, to his semi-feud, if you will, with Glenn Greenwald and living in Montana, far outside the Acela media, we start with Warzel leaving Substack and taking his newsletter over to The Atlantic. I want to start, obviously, with the news uh, that was announced this week, their move to The Atlantic. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, you, you had left The New York Times in April of, of this year, hang, hung out in the world of Substack for about uh, seven months or so. Um, and and you, you wrote in this great piece about all the reasons why you're leaving, a very nuanced piece, which I think, you know, I want to have a nuanced conversation and also a nuanced conversation about nuance. So we'll, we'll get to that like nerdy newsletter, business of newsletter stuff later also. But I, I want to know, because I think immediately when you left the New York Times, went to Substack, when now you're leaving Substack and go to the Atlantic, people want to make a story about that. That this says something about the traditional versus le- you know traditional and legacy versus new and independent. And, and I, I want to know: Do you think there's a broader thing here? And and I guess if you, if so, what do you think that is? And if not, why do you think everything has to be a broader story, especially in this current environment about newsletters? Yeah, it's it's been really disorienting, and like I mean. <laughs> It's, I understand it, right? And I, I actually, in this post, I tried to like hedge against it, right? Like I'm, I'm figuring this was going to become a future of news conversation. And <laughs> I, I wanted, you know, I mean, to some degree, it's, it, it is, you know, in the sense that like, I want to do work in the media space, in the journalism space that's on, you know, that's sort of new and interesting. And I, you know, I think newsletters as a format are, are great for all the, you know, reasons everyone talks about voicey, you know, I think it's kind of like a cheat code, honestly, to do the most interesting writing, like publications <laughs> from, you know, the times to everywhere, right. Or, um, you know, if, if you, if you write something as a, as a column or an op-ed or whatever, like there's sort of yeah. a way in which to speak and do it. But then like, if you do a newsletter, it's like spoiler, it's the same thing. Uh, and they just like let you write in a really interesting kind of internet native way, which um, you know, everyone's saying newsletters or blogs. I some mostly agree. Um, so, so, so there's that element, right? Like, and following following that. So I get that. But yeah, I, to some degree, like I've always also just been trying with all these moves to do the work that I think is most interesting and most relevant and most helpful uh, you know, f- for me as like a, as a writer, as a thinker, as a reporter. Um, and, and, and so like, I'm making these moves less because of like, I think this is where the wind is blowing with the whole industry or anything. And yeah. more like, Oh, I think this is where I can do the best work. And, you know, Substack, I see it as like an awesome experiment, you know, and, and also a thing that I, I really needed to do. I really was having, um, some trouble, uh, with my, my columns in the times, like 
I, I felt I was, I was being overly declarative. I felt like I needed more, as you said earlier, like to inject a little more nuance, a little uncertainty. I wasn't sure about how I felt about a lot of things and I wanted to. So it wasn't an editor. Thing. It was more of your own sort of self-criticism of what you were putting out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, like, I got, I got to be honest, like to work the New York times is, is a, is a dream for, for a journalist in terms of the amount of resources, in terms of the, you know, the, the reach and the platform. Um, I had good working relationships with, with people there, you know, uh, I had a, for a, a person who's 34 years old, I had, a, had a heck of a lot of freedom, um, to, to write about things that were interesting. And, uh, but you know, at the end of the day too, like I, I, I just found that the work that I wanted to do was, was gravitating towards this other format. And, and I, and I'd also be lying if I didn't say like, it was the idea of, you know, trying to start my own thing and sort of testing out my, my real market value and being my own boss. Like all those things were, were really exciting. And I felt like if I was going to make a move to do it that moment in time, which was April of 2021, that was the time to do it. If I waited six months, you know, it might not have been possible. So you know, that was the reason. Yeah. And you did, and you, and you have some good lessons in there, I think about your, your time at Substack, which I want to get into later. Um, but I, I agree, you know, this, this podcast came out of the fourth watch newsletter, which I started in December of 2019. And, and I agree. You know, I've written columns before I've been a reporter. I, I think there's a, there's a different feel to newsletters and it does feel sort of of the moment in podcasts in, in, in a way as well, there's an intimacy to it. You know, you send an email, it says, it says it's from the author of the newsletter when you receive it. And you open it, and it feels like it's almost uh, to you. Um, and it's it's different in that way. You're 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 getting a, this direct relationship with the reader, as opposed to having to rely on people finding you or spreading it on Twitter, which I want to talk about later. Also, so so I agree. I think that there's something to it, and I and I, I also though at the same time am am kind of laugh at the way newsletters are being portrayed. I, I, when Puck News launched uh, and they described them, they said journalists are the original influencers. And I was like, I, I don't know if that's really true. Um, you know, they, they want their, and, and they do some good newsletters over at Puck News, but it's like, is that really what we're doing? Is it really about this, like, I'm an influencer now and that's why I have a newsletter? Or is it about the format and, and sort of the editorial voice you can bring to it? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is such a, it's such a complicated conversation, right? Because like, I mean, if you are, if you go and start your own, you know, sub stack and you, you're, you become a, a content, like an independent content creator, right? And, and that path is what, you know, social media influencers are, right? And it, and part of that being an influencer is like a degree of incredible freedom and a degree of incredible precarity, right? There's so much upside. There's also a lot of downside. Uh, it's, it's a hustle. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those sort of like 90, 10, right? 10% or maybe even less, maybe, or fewer, maybe, you know, two or 3% succeed greatly. And then the rest are grinding. Uh, the, yeah, the sports analogy is that there's a much larger ceiling and much larger floor. I think, you know, if, if you go that route, right. Yeah. And, and so, so, I mean, to some extent, like, the idea that you, it's a tricky thing, right? To say like journalists are the original influencers because like, it's sort of, I think what a lot of legacy newsrooms would, would want to shy away from, right? Which is to say like, we, we don't want it to be so personality driven right. uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's all about the storyteller and not about the story. Um, 
at the same time, it's always been the case, yes, that like in most organizations, in most newsrooms, at least for the last, you know, whatever, 30, 40 years, there's always been this, the, you know, sort of like the, the star people who, um, you know, who, who bring a lot of uh, either prestige or excitement or whatever to the to the thing. And in, in some cases, it's always about the storyteller and their story and their ability to do it. So yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they're just being kind of like uh, overly cute over there with that, with that marketing. Um, but it, it does sort of speak right now to this, this idea that like, you know, individual journalists who are really good at what they do and have, you know, really original voices and stuff during this sort of glut of content that the internet allows us to, to put out, uh, you know, they have a lot of power and, and Substack is one way of journalists kind of exercising that power. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, there's always going to be parts of it that are, that are fraught and and precarious, especially when, you know, some people go out on their own because they think they have a certain amount of power. Uh, and it turns out that they, they don't, and you know, that, that can, that can hurt in, in really big ways. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, I, I think social media is is sort of the elephant in the room, and I, what I want to get to uh, after this, also because I think that there's you talk about the, the 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 influencers, you know, the influencer vehicles, you know, the amplification vehicles for across the board, legacy media and new media are is Twitter, is Facebook and Instagram, and 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 the new platforms of of ways of of reaching a new audience and feeling like you've got fans and likes and all that. So I want to talk about that next, but but before we get there, I want to just go back to the Atlantic because I, you know. I come from a, I, I'm, I often will critique legacy media. Uh, I, I'm, and I have to say, I think the Atlantic is really good. Um, I, I think some of the best COVID pieces that I've read over the last 18 months have originated in the Atlantic. I think that there's a certain nuance. I, I, you know, I think heterodox is kind of a term that gets thrown around, but whether it's heterodox thinking or kind of a unique spin on something, it, it, I always find myself reading something different there. Um, and so I wonder what, what resonated with you where you're like, okay, if I'm going to leave my Substack, this is the way to go. So like I, you mentioned that you mentioned, there's a couple of things you mentioned the COVID coverage. And for me, you know, I, I basically from late February, 2020, noticed, I mean, I, I'm one of those people that, that signed up and, and paid because for a subscription there, because I, uh, I ended up hitting the paywall so much that yeah. I, I I felt that it was necessary, and it was honestly one of, one of the one of the few places where where that happened, and it was due to that. And what I what I noticed immediately of it was that like the the COVID coverage especially was framing articles around really interesting questions that I was encountering in my own life. So it was like, not only was it a really interesting reported explanation of a thing, but also at the same time, it was, it was like, it had a servicey element to it, right? Like, it was like, I don't understand what's going on with X, right? Or I don't know what's going on, why everyone's buying, you know, toilet paper or whatever. And, and, and it was like, it was, I felt like they were, they were picking off and answering these questions, right. And providing this service with also like new ideas, interesting analysis. Um, so I was really drawn by that because it, that's how I work as, as a journalist, right? Like I am someone who I, I basically am not good at, um, sticking with a beat or a story or a thing, unless I'm like encountering it in my own life and trying to answer questions for myself. There's like a real self-serving element to that. It's like, I, I want, to, you know, kind of process the world and do that in public a little bit. Um, and so th 
because of the fact that that's how they adapted to this really big news event, I thought, well, like, this is a group of people who kind of work and think like me. And then, you know, as I, uh, as I started talking about this, this whole endeavor and also about coming in and writing other things for the magazine, it's very clear in a way that, um, it, it, it sort of seemed like unlike any other place I'd ever worked, that it was really based around, um, this is going to sound really like flat and simple, but it's based around interesting ideas, right? It's it's yeah. like less based off of, we need to get this news out here. You know, like I was at the opinion section of the times. I have a lot of respect for everyone there and everything, but you know, at the end of the day, even the opinion section, New York times is a daily newspaper, right? It's the news. The news always leads. The news always wins. I'm not, you know, I'm not like, a scoop beast, you know, I'm not yeah, like, it's yeah. never been the thing that I gravitate towards the most. And, and I just kind of got a sense talking to different people at the, at the publication, including writers that like, it's a place that really privileges writers uh, and, and is really interested in the most interesting idea, even if it's a little off kilter or off topic or off the news. And I, I just thought like, well, I, I've never worked at a place like that. I think that there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of similarities and 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 um, way, similar ways of thinking. Is Facebook good or evil? A debate of sorts, but also a discussion about why that's not really the right question to be asking. I want to talk about Facebook. I, I've written a lot about Facebook over at Galaxy Brain. I imagine that will be continued topic uh, as well. And it's 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 something that look. I I think I get that Facebook is a gigantic, very powerful company. Um, I, I think that you watch Mark Zuckerberg kind of wading his way through the metaverse and it's sort of awkward and weird um, in that video that he did. But to me, it feels like there's there's an altruism to Zuckerberg himself and to the company where if you're putting it in, in, a, in the most non-nuanced terms, it's in good versus evil, you know, like good intentions versus nefarious intentions. I think unlike most giant companies, I would put them in the good category. Now, that doesn't excuse things that they've done, and, and then we can dive into the nuance of it. But it seems like there's, there's a, a general agreement among, particularly in the media, and I would even argue among Democrats and Republicans in, in D.C., that Facebook is bad. And, and I wonder what you think why that is. And, and if you disagree with me, why, why you think that maybe they're worse than I'm giving them credit for? I mean, I can get into that. I'd say like right off the bat, I'm most frustrated by the fact that it has to be this like good and bad frame, know, right? It's very, it's very, it's very similar to this idea that like I would see in a lot of places, right? That like, um, uh, especially like in spaces like Twitter around the election where people are like, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's a Republican. And I was like, no. And then people yeah. be like, well, Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, like a, a rabid liberal, obviously, like look at this stuff. And I was like, well, I mean, there's maybe more of a case for that to some degree, but really what he is, is his politics are Facebook. His politics are the growth of Facebook as, as an organization, not necessarily even like revenue and bottom line. I'm talking about the growth of Facebook and our reliance on Facebook and our daily use of Facebook. <laughs> Like that is, that is his whole reason for being, um, everyone I talk to who, you know, who knows him, uh, or has, you know, worked for the company like that. That's, that's the thing. This is his life's work. This is his project. His ambition is the thing. It's why he's not going to step down, you know, all, all this stuff. So 
that that whole i feel like almost like the republican democrat thing right is like people trying to do that that oh is he good or is he bad is he this or is he that and it's like well you're kind of you're kind of missing the point and and the, and the real issue is like are the effects of facebook on the world good or bad right and there's going to be a mix of all of those like i think some of the reporting that we saw from all of these papers in the wall street journal's facebook files when you look at some of the stuff that's been happening in developing nations in the way that they like you know bust into a country and just, you know, throw their products out there and they don't even have, you know, content moderation services in the languages of the countries they're going into. Like that's incredibly negligent, especially when you know that they can be leveraged by political parties on all sides to, you know, promote different kinds kinds of propaganda. I mean, that's that's negligent behavior and that is a net negative for those places, you know, at the end of the day. Now, granted, you know, bringing lots of Help, you know, helping to bring people into the, you know, the information age or the online information age rather like that, that, that is positive. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of social movements. There's a lot of every, you know, there's knitting clubs, there's, uh, you know, societal yeah. fabric things that, that are lovely and joyful and connection with people and, you know, like staying in touch with people. And, and, you know, Facebook's so big, I'm sorry if I'm rambling here, but like Facebook is just so big that, there's going to be some really, you know, heartwarming things, and there's going to be some catastrophic stuff that is actually probably, you know, eroding uh, our ability to talk to each other as a society. Um, and it just kind of all gets reduced down to this, like, you know, is Mark Zuckerberg the mustache twirling billionaire cackling as you know as regions are you know being thrown into authoritarian chaos? And it's like, well, probably not, but like. Right. Are they operating in reckless ways in some capacities and really need to, you know, uh, be held accountable for that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's so, and, and I, I think this is kind of something you got out in, in a piece that I thought was really great. Talk about nuanced, the Biden Facebook fight is part of the problem. This was in July. And this came about when, when Joe Biden said, they're killing people. Facebook is killing people. And that is what he, you know, he, he just said outright. And I, you even, you noted in the piece, I would say maybe it was off the cuff, maybe not. Maybe it was, and, and this was all in this context of the dangers of misinformation and disinformation that was being spread on the pat- platform. But this feels like kind of almost purposely over the top rhetoric to scare people. And, and I, I, look, I think Facebook's a platform. I, I think that people who can misuse Facebook and people can use Facebook in ways that are right. But I really look at something like this and the way that that went down and, and, and I worry about the overreach, you know, and, and I, I think it's only cheerleaded by kind of pro censorship forces in the media, which seems odd to me, seem to like this idea of broad brush crackdowns on quote unquote misinformation without really thinking about what the ramifications of that might, of that what that might be, be down the road. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that we, we see like, you know, I, I think we, we interpret certain things with, with our with different probably political and social balances, but like broadly, broadly speaking, I mean, I, I think that Biden example, right. Is how do I, how, like how to put this, like, I think that there was like a des- there's like a desperation there, right? Like he's looking at vaccination numbers and he's and he's like and he's seeing that you know there, there's an issue and and certainly there is you know there's vaccine misinformation on on the platform like information that is not correct about yeah, what you know about what, vac- let's say. what vaccines do for you, right? Like it's just it's 
that that's a fact. There's incorrect um, information out there. Yes. Yeah. And he, he I think there's a, you know, that that statement is uh, Facebook is killing people is based off of, you know, like a, a, a bit of a, some desperation there and, 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 and obviously real frustration of trying to get a specific message out and, and having it be, be countered. And it is, it is, it's, it's one of those things where you, you kind of wonder like, is it, is it productive or is it, or is it not productive? And I, and I lean on the side of it's actually, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a productive way to talk about it just because it, what it ends up doing is it ends up creating the, the very conversation that you and I are having instead of Strides addressing, the, address, yeah, addressing the, the actual, um, the actual issues at hand. And, and, you know, and, and I think some of this also comes from the fact that like, I mean, we've yet to have, uh, uh, like, a you know, an internet, uh, like a president who is like, you know, really native to, to, to the internet or something. Like, I just, I don't, I, I'm sure Joe Biden has used Facebook once or twice or something, you know, but like, you know, you, yeah, you have people weighing we have in. The, the closest we have is the last president. It was, it was as close to Twitter native as you can get. I'm yeah. Sorry, and, and, yeah. And also didn't like, I don't think has ever had an email address or something. You know? So true, it's like, true. it's like, you just, it, it, it's weird. Um, I think, but, yeah. so I think there's, there's a little bit of like, you know, not speaking from, uh, a lot of raw expertise about the information um, realm, so to speak. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's an unproductive way to frame to frame a conversation. And, and I do, and I do see, you know, I, I really do. I struggle with this. Going back to the, you know, like we'll stick with this theme of nuance, right? Like, I, I think that there's a lot that these platforms need to be held accountable for because of the fact that they've grown and made, you know, tons of money off of t- uh, stuff that is, you know, totally fine and frivolous, but also a lot of, you know, garbage that, that I think is actually detrimental to people. And it doesn't even have to be political garbage, right? It's just like crap. Um, and I think that there's, you know, I still don't think like, despite all the negative media coverage, like there hasn't been a lot of, you know, real accountability, right? Like you've had, you've had some, some slap on the wrist fines for Facebook, et cetera. But what I'm trying to say is like, I think at one point, you know, are on one side of it, what someone like Biden said there is kind of counterproductive for the reasons. I can also understand the impulse of like, what is going to get people to, you know, to, to hold, you know, people accountable for, um, for some, some of their, their missteps and some of their reckless, you know, behavior or corporate architecture. Right. So so it's it's tough. Yeah, it is. And and, and I get the instinct to hold people accountable, but, but this idea on Facebook and, and you mentioned, you know, political sides. I mean, I, I'm an independent, but I I think I look at someone like Josh Hawley who wants to go in there and blow up, you know, uh, two 30. And, and I don't think is really thinking through the ramifications of what that would be. I worry about something like that. If, if two 30 goes away, is there going to be, instead of retroactive censorship, okay, you know, we're going to take down conservative posts that, you know, that, that we think is a violation, that there's going to be proactive censorship. And it's, it, it's going to be much more uh, sweeping that, you know, instead of hitting send when you, when you go to tweet something, it gets, it, and, and it going out there and maybe getting taken down or getting you suspended, it goes into some sort of, you know, portal where someone has to read it and decide if it goes out to the, out there. And that, and that, I think, is really going to backfire and, and it's going to be the slippery slope that the other that the right is not really expecting yeah i and and you know i don't think it's going to get that 
wild that quickly. Um, but, but I, I think that there isn't, you know, with like, I, I don't think a lot of people are going to, um, stand for like, and I'm, I'm talking about people across the political spectrum for, for any kind of, you know, like censorship over, over who, who has to read the tweets from what company before yeah. they go out. Like, I just don't think, I, I don't think as a society, we can put some of that back in the box so quickly without huge pushback. And I'm talking very broadly because we have become used as a society to, you know, speaking our minds uh, in all these different, you know, new forms. But I broadly agree with this and, and have been trying to sort of bang the drum of we have to be very, very careful about the solutions here. And I know that that's super annoying as someone who's long been saying, like, we do need some accountability for these platforms, for these companies. We, we do need to make sure that, you know, um, that if they set up terms of service, uh, terms of services and, and rules that they adhere to their own rules and, you know, don't apply them, uh, you know, um, unfairly. But yeah, I, the way that I look at this, at the issue of, you know, big tech and platforms and the, you know, the, the wild democratization of speech that we've seen on the internet, like this sort of flourishing of all, of all this speech, of all these different voices, et cetera. It's obviously chaotic. It's obviously good in some ways. It's obviously, you know, worrisome in other ways. Um, it's like a printing press style, you know, like shift, right? And you watch those things are, are you know, if not generational, they're multi-generational. Like it takes so much time for us to understand exactly what's happening, exactly, you know, what our you know, as a, as a society to find consensus on how we want to talk to each other now in these spaces, you know, what those rules need to be, what productive conversation looks like versus, you know, what unproductive and toxic, crappy conversations look like, you know, who should have access to, to, you know, what levels of exemption, you know, politicians and whatever newsworthiness exemptions, all those things, like we're not going to figure that out and come to some consensus on it really quickly right. because it's, it's like societal and generational. And we haven't had sort of a, you know, a, we, we haven't all ever been connected in this way. And yeah. so one thing I worry about is people saying like, okay, well, if we can just amend this one law right here, right? If we can just like, this is the core problem. And if we change some of the speech or if we get rid of it, or if we do whatever, like, like snap your fingers and, uh, you know, we can wash our hands of this pesky problem and we're Great done. Facebook and it's up. like, yeah, and it's like, it's not like there, you know, I think that there's, there's plenty to talk about in breaking up Facebook and taking away some of their corporate power so that, you know, they have less leverage when it comes to when, when, you know, comp when we do want to talk about different solutions, right? Because it, it's, it's not great if they have so much power that like, you know, there's literally nothing you could do uh, to keep them in, in, in check from doing, you know, really harmful societal level things. But at the same time, you know, spinning out WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook, that's not a silver bullet. And it might not even solve some of the problems you think. And it might create some other problems that we that we don't know about. I just yeah. think there's this feeling right now, especially with people who, uh, you know, who have been super critical, understandably, of companies like, like Facebook, that it's sort of like we need to find the, the, the quick fix because the problem is really serious. And, and my, my understanding or my sort of <laughs> entreaty to them is like, this is going to take a really long time and it's going to be messy. And we have to sort of, 
understand that. It doesn't mean don't look for solutions, don't look for ways to make, you know, everything better, but a quick fix may do as much harm as what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these problems are bigger than the, than the platforms too. I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's certainly true. Coming up, Charlie and I dive into another social platform, Twitter, and whether it's helping destroy the media's credibility, plus the business of newsletters. But first, how do you fight disinformation and misinformation? Well, with good information or something. A group of billionaire left-wing activists got together recently to launch Good Information Inc., which, according to Axios, promises to fund new media companies in efforts to tackle disinformation. Investors behind the company include George Soros and Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. Let's put Soros to the side for a minute, although a lot could be written about him. Hoffman is a tech billionaire who comes to the world of fighting disinformation by having participated in disinformation dissemination himself. During the 2017 Alabama Senate race, which saw Doug Jones defeat Roy Moore, Hoffman funded a group of Democratic tech experts who tried to emulate Russian election tampering tactics by, in their own words, orchestrating an elaborate false flag operation that planted the idea that the Moore campaign was amplified on social media by a Russian botnet. Hoffman was forced to apologize the next year. Running this good information company poised to debunk misinformation is Tara McGowan, a former Democratic operative who previously ran the Courier Newsroom, a group of websites purporting to be local news sites, but were actually pushing Democratic talking points. Courier Newsroom, which solely produced news favorable to Democratic candidates and elected officials, an unusual blend of newsroom and political action committee that might, in less polite company, be termed propaganda, was how Veitch reported it. So in the next few years, when you start hearing about how good information is fighting against the disinformation that it surely will find coming solely from the right wing of the internet, remember who the forces are behind this scam with the creepy sounding name. More with Charlie coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, no subscription, no credit card, no trial, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Charlie Warzel. I know, you know, from your uh, goodbye uh, note on Substack is something that you have conflicted feelings about for sure. I certainly do as well. Uh, I've tried to quit Twitter many times. It's, uh, I, I think it's fair to say there's a, an addictive quality uh, to it, at least for what I do. Um, and, and I think for a lot of journalism, and I, and I, I you wrote a piece, which uh, this was back in two, uh, 2020 and about Felicia Sanmez and a sort of social media policy at legacy media outlets. Um, mm -hmm. and, but it really, I, I think, kind of gets to the point of like, is Twitter a net positive or a net negative thing for a media that has such a huge impact uh, and, and populates it at a much greater percentage than any other, say, you know, occupation in, in the country? Um, is it is it good or is it not good? And, and and again, I know that's sort of simplistic way of looking at it. Sure. But it it it's such a huge part of the way media works these days on a lot of levels. And mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's changed the way the media works in ways that it it doesn't really comprehend how the audience is is seeing it as a sort of erosion of what the the core goals were in the first place. It's so it's so complicated. You know, I, in the sense of, I really dislike when people say, 
when the people use the phrase Twitter isn't real life, right? Like I I've written about this, I wrote about this a few times at the New York times, like obviously Twitter is not a, like, you know, a, an accurate <laughs> yeah. simulacrum of society, right? Like obviously the conversations there are uh, specific and there's a certain type of person that uses Twitter. There's a certain type of person who's allowed on Twitter and has a lot of followers. There's a certain segment, you know, of, of people who are, who are on there, who, you know, like um, especially in the media who have different, who are focused on different things. Um, and so obviously that that's the case, but I also think people use that phrase, right. To dismiss things that they don't, you know, want to deal with. Right. So like when, when you look at the way that like, just, let's just take black lives matter, like in, in that organization, when I, when I wrote about this argument, it's like, you know, it's a major social movement of you know the the last uh, five seven years, and it was kind of a, a native Twitter movement to some degree. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it, and then you can talk about you know different elements of like let's just say like the pro Trump media, et cetera, and different you know hashtag campaigns and things like that, and uh, things that that were that were native to that that grew out of that. Right? They were they were small. They found voices on there. Uh, and also like th- those movements were, you know, you can like, th- you can like the movement or hate the movement or whatever. Uh, it represents a real constituency, probably not a majority constituency when you're talking about some of these, you know, either activist movements or, or, or political movements, but, but it's real. And like to listen to it makes, like we should be listening to it. The media should be listening to it. And to dismiss it as like a Twitter thing is <laughs> probably like, you're probably doing that at a detriment just because it doesn't have critical mass doesn't mean it's not real, especially if it's finding a home on social media and a place like Twitter. Yeah. But, but that, so there's a democratization to it, but, but, but there's, the pendulum can also swing the other direction. Totally. You know, even just like, you know, I've got whatever, 40,000 followers, you've got a lot more than that. It can feel like when you tweet something and it, and it like go, you know, takes off. And then all of a sudden it's like a couple hundred or a couple thousand people even that, that retweeted it. And all of a sudden you feel, or, or vice versa. I mean, if you've ever been in the, you know, getting in the, in, in the ratio, uh, uh, in Twitter, you know, it can feel like the world is collapsing on you. Um, yeah. and, and I think that there's, there's an element of that is not necessarily representative of, and, and, I, and I would say that's on a personal level, but for companies, you know, a company that does something and then all of a sudden gets 20 angry tweets, it can feel like, holy shit, like this is, like, we have to like, you know, have a, let's get all the executives together. This is, this is you know, and it, there's something that feels, it's so public that it can feel bigger than it is also. One hundred percent, and and I was that was sort of like where, where I was heading with, especially with the media too. Is it be it being a negative? Is when you over-index that signal, right? When you over-inflate the importance of that, and I think that it's a it's a big problem with with you know with a lot of political punditry is people see you know an argument on Twitter that's you know somewhat confined, and it, again, it's representative of something, right? But like it's taken as like it's, it's scooped out and it's portrayed as like, well, this is what America is, right? This is, this is what, you know, this is the future liberals want, et cetera, like whatever it is. Yeah. And and it's like, well, I mean, it's maybe some, but like, it, you know, you start painting with these broad brushes and, and I think, I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of pundits and stuff out there that I would love to see, you know, 
I, I log off and, and, and stop <laughs> over-indexing the, these arguments to the degree that they are, um, or, or, or at least to portray them as, hey, you know, this is this is a this is a this is a tenant of X political philosophy that I think is worth interrogating instead of this is the Republican Party, this is the Democratic right. Party, this is this, and everyone is everyone is um, you know can be caught up in that self very much included, you know, uh, my, one of my favorite like lines about social media, uh, from, um, uh, that I've heard in like the last year or two is, is that like, it, re- it requires us to act with so much grace, you know, <laughs> like in a perfect world, like to, to have a really perfect social media experience, everyone has to act with so much restraint and grace and understanding and empathy. And it's like the medium does not, incentivize that and so what ends up happening is is we end up you know we end up acting sort of the opposite way and that's like the way to have the least productive um conversations with it and it's just it's just a fact it's you know part of the architecture of the platforms and and that kind of brings me back to the newsletters because i i think the perfect antidote to twitter is the is the newsletter uh you know it's almost the opposite of of the way people you know interact uh in in sort of the the headline the 280 characters versus a a long-form newsletter like that and um you know going back now to to your the post that you wrote um and you got you got real into the weeds with it right Sixteen thousand subscribers Mm -hmm. 1400 that are paying which you know i i think as someone who writes a newsletter that's free right now i would say if i got 10% uh you know if i turned on a paid feature and got 10% of my subscribers to be paying uh something i think that would be a huge huge success i think that's an, mm-hmm. that's an enormous number um it, it also reminded me back what back in April, I was having a Twitter argument with Ian Bremmer, who was saying you're about to be a millionaire. And I was saying that, no, probably not. But if you get like, you know, and I even wrote 2000 paying subs, I mean, that cost benefit starts to get really good. And that's not that many. And obviously, you were very close to that even after just a few months. So I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you got into it. And, and I and and I also want to kind of dovetail the the economics of it, which I think are important with with two other features that you brought up. One is the the way that subscribers who are paying felt that they you, they kind of wanted their a certain kind of value in return and and what it did if it made you moderate or change kind of how you covered things or how you wrote about things based on the feedback um, and then I want to talk about Glenn Greenwald so <laughs> sure uh, it it didn't moderate how, what I, I mean, I can imagine in, in some respect, if I wrote about different things, maybe that it would, you know, like, um, I, I think people, I, I think I put myself in a decent spot with that, where I, I kind of said, this is going to be long and meandering and, you know, I'm going to sort of noodle over these topics. And it's, I, you know, I think it's going to be a little, like I wanted to sort of get into the nuance with, with this newsletter and and sort of agonize over over that and and always sort of try to pin for that. So I think because that was what a lot of people were signing up for, there was there wasn't a lot of like, why didn't you say this? Right, um, right, right. But I do think like it, you know it, it's part of the on on sort of a different side of 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 that conversation was like i was really concerned a lot about like am i providing the right value right like what amount of things need to be free versus what needs to be paid you know i want to grow this thing so i want more people to see stuff and you know there's this idea of like um you know that substack says uh to people it's like put your best stuff you know make your best stuff free and you know then do you know a lot of other stuff behind the paywall 
Oh, like, I, you know, I didn't want to write so much that I was writing stuff that I was actively like, I don't really think this is very good. I'm just going to give it to the people who are paying. It's like, <laughs> right. well, what? I, I didn't really, I never really understood that. But it was also, I don't want to write. So, so I want I've kind of made a lot of stuff free, which meant a lot of people were paying in sort of a patronage model. They wanted to, you know, they were like, I like what you do. I want you to be able to do it independently. And so I, I'll also underwrite it for other people. I think that's awesome. That's like the, the, the dream of the internet, right? right? I think it's, I'm, I'm really humbled by that. Um, but at the same time too, it's like, you know, I, I just agonized over a lot of these choices. Like how, like how, how much am I writing? What am I doing? And then, you know, I'd have people say like, unsubscribe from the, the paid tier and say, man, everything is free. You know, like, like, what yeah. am I, what, what am I paying for? And being, you know, frustrated with that or, or I'd have people, you know, say, I cannot keep up with how much you write. I'm unsubscribing and I'm not paying anymore. And then I'd have people be like, why aren't you writing more? I'm unsubscribing. <laughs> and so you're just like, you're agonizing over, over a lot of that stuff and kind of constantly trying to you can get in a space, right? And this is like the classic like creator issue where you're just like, like, you're trying to tailor to these like opposing opinions and viewpoints and you end up not doing what you set out to do. Like if I was going to give anyone going down this independent newsletter path, their thing is like, do the thing you want to do. Like, this is your thing. And like, just, you will, you will, if you do it really well and, and you know that there's an audience for it, you like let those people who, you know, who need 25 pieces of content a week from you. Like, don't like, you know, let them slip off because you, you actually want the readers who are here and respect your process essentially. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the feedback mechanism is so much greater than if you were at, you know, at the New York times doing this or at the Atlantic doing this, it's, it, it's, it's right there. And it has such a great impact on, on your life, you know, so it, it, it's hard to do that, but it makes sense. Um, but that also leads. Okay. Glenn Greenwald, um, uh, you mentioned him either by name or, or by reference. I think it was four times in that, in that mm. post. He then of course tweeted about it and then you tweeted about mm. it and it, and it, I don't know if it's a feud or if it's just sort of a fun thing, but I do think you, you kind of describe it as grievance blogging. Um, and, and I know Glenn does a variety of things, but I, I think there's some level of what he does that is, goes really deep into some sort of, you know, thing that's kind of bubbling up on social media, but I also look at it as like Glenn Greenwald, a Matt Taibbi. These are people that for some reason we've realigned the media and they've become these kind of outcasts in, in what they do, but, but they also have these great careers as, as journalists uh, for a long time. And so I, I wonder if you look at it and like, wh what is it about the Glenn Greenwald thing that you find this foil with? Um, I, I think that he right now in this iteration of time is one of the people that I would say, over indexes based off of being relatively addicted to Twitter. Um, I, 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 I think that that, I think he takes a lot of those arguments and sees them as incredibly indicative of exactly the point he's willing to prove. Not that's, saying that's, who, that's who you were telling to log off. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, and I mean that in the sense of like, it's just like it, I wrote, I wrote this a while back. So, I mean, the reason why there's this like, you know, I don't even know what you'd call it, uh, back and forth. It is because when I left the Times for Substack, two weeks in, he looked at my leaderboard stats. And again, it was like, it was honestly more like like 12 days, right? And he was like, 
you know, he only has hundreds of paid subscribers. Like, it's very clear that this is a failure. Um, and I was like, dude, like, I, I mean, like, I know I don't, I don't have a Pulitzer Prize. I didn't start my, my, my own, my own media company, you know, with the founder of, of eBay, right? Like, I don't have that public profile. I have a public profile. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, you know, like, like a guy off the street or anything, but like, yes, I'm not a household name. So like, I, this is going to go a little bit slow, but I was, I kind of used that as a way of like, I looked through some of his stuff and I found that it was, I mean, again, I was, he, he would, he would call it righteous anger, righteous indignation. Um, and, and, you know, opinion journalism. Um, I, it seemed very much to me like he was over indexing and assigning extra importance to a lot of, you know, like, uh, as I described it, like internecine internet beefs. <laughs> and, and I was, you know, it's not what I wanted to do. Like I, when he tweeted about me, I got like stuck in his like replies and it was just people like, I mean, it was just people who had so much anger towards me, uh, for, and like, literally I, to that point, I don't think I had really criticized him or, or, written about him or anything like that. Um, it was just like this New York times shill trying to do this thing. He, of course he's going to fail because he's at, he's a no talent neoliberal hack, um, who worked for the New York times opinion page. Like, why don't you go start another, you know, war in the middle East? And it's like, okay, well, I was, I was in, uh, I was in seventh grade and we in, invaded, um, <laughs> you know, Iraq. Uh, so anyhow, I was yeah. like, I was like, this is a really like, it just seems like exi his existence is like pretty miserable right now in terms of like his online existence. And I was like, so that's why I say like, yeah, log off. Like, like <laughs> just like, it, there's just so much of that negativity there. Um, but what I, what I do want to say is that like, I wrote at the end of the, 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 you know, I'm leaving Substack post. I, I, I said that like, you know, Substack is good for people like it seems to be working better for people who don't have immediate homes elsewhere. And like, I think he and a couple other people took that to mean like, Oh, you know, I'm saying I'm unpublishable or whatever, but like, I, I think, you know, like his public fallout with the intercept, you know, showed a, he didn't really want to be edited or have anyone constrain his views. Like he, uh, you know, there's, if, if you are not actively, if you have a big profile and you're not actively being courted by other places and there's not like a, you know, a number of mainstream media organizations who want to like lap you up, then you going to Substack, like that's just naturally the way content works. That's going to make it very popular, right? It's, it's a voice that wouldn't have a home elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really making ne even necessarily making a value judgment about it. I was saying that like, <laughs> that's why it's popular. Like people, people want to do that. I also believe that he pisses a lot of people off. I think Taibi pisses a lot of people off and there's a lot of people who delight in that. And they're like, keep doing it, keep writing. I'm going to pay you to do that. I don't think my work necessarily is of like, I don't think that's my, what I'm doing. Yeah. And I also think that it provides less of an incentive for people to pay me. You know, like I, I was very, I was very honest about the fact that like, I probably work best as a suite of people, like, you know, in, in a suite of people who are ideas writers or, you know, like as a package because right. of the fact that like, I, I just, the nature of my work is not like, I'm going to say 
the thing that that literally no one else will say. I just want to be more interesting. (laughs) Which is kind of what you started with the side channel discord, which I don't totally understand. But I think that that was like a consortium of people, right? That were kind of, you know, in the same boat of of thinking about things in in certain ways, but not individualized that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I I, I get what you're coming from, Glenn. I, I have to say though, you know, I like Glenn. I think that that one of the things though is there's there has been this realignment where like, you know, yes, he he burned the bridge as as, as publicly as he could with 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 the intercept, but mm-hmm. it was over what was going to happen with Hunter Biden, and and you know, it was we we we're in this time now where I think the the window of what is you know a place that would want a Glenn Greenwald or a Matt Taibbi and want them to be them um, is dwindling, and and yeah, I think that that's absolutely true, and I I, I don't. I don't know if that's a good thing though, necessarily for the broader media. I think that, you know, certain people, you know, if he, if he, if he wasn't doing long 2000 word posts about internet beef, you know, well reported out, uh, which, you know, is only part of what he does. I think that, that there is still a, a, a place for the types of reporting that he does that, you know, is just not really going to be welcomed in certain places anymore. But I think, I think it's, I think it's hard because like, you know, part of that, part of that, like, um, I, I didn't pay as like extreme attention to it, but I think like I, I think a little of what you're saying is, is is definitely correct. And then I think another part of it is like when you when you looked at that intercept fallout, there's like some of it was like, hey, we were just trying to get you to like like you know abide by like our our our, our editing standards. Uh, and it was like absolutely not. I, I refuse to be edited. It's like okay, right. well, um, so it's so, his contract or something that he was, that he was not allowed to be edited. And, so. and hey, you know what? Like that's. <laughs> part part of what you can what you can do when you're when you're a household name yeah. all, all, right. all, all i'm saying is like i i you know i, I think it's i think it's tough i don't want to see a you know an, an internet environment that's like completely sterilized i also think there's like a, a really or a like a, a news opinion sections that are completely sterilized i also think there's there's truth to a lot of the people who are like on online at being like dude dude do the journalist like do some of that that investigative reporting, like even some of the, you know, a lot of the stuff he did, um, about Brazil and the intercept, it's like, like do, yeah. do more of that please. And less like arguing about something you saw on Twitter, because you clearly have a talent, like a, a Pulitzer prize winning talent at the other thing. Uh, and like it, the, the, you know, the internet beefing is really just like, it's everyone's exhausted by it, including yourself. And, and, and is it getting us to like a really, is it getting us to a better, place are we talking to each other more and, and more productively like i think you can make a good argument no so yeah. and anyhow I, I i it's not too deep for me and i i'm not uh i'm not super wounded i just saw it as sort of he was kind of trying to do the opposite thing that i was trying to do and that's totally understandable and one of them is proved to be very lucrative and one of them my thing proved to be less lucrative fourth watch lightning round is coming up but first his new book on the future of work and being a writer on tech and culture while living in Montana. You have a book coming out next month um, with your mm-hmm. partner that you write. I want you to tell me about that future of work. And then also you, like I, um, outside of the Acela media, as I call it, New York and DC, mm-hmm. you're out of San Francisco in the tech world and and you're in Montana. So w- w- what is la- that like? What is life like there? And uh, tell me about the book. Sure. Um, they kind of dovetail. Uh, so I... Uh, my my partner is from uh, is from Idaho originally, uh, and 
we both worked at BuzzFeed News. And in 2017, uh, we sort of saw an opportunity to get outside of, you know, there was a little bit of a, like, reporters need to understand America better. <laughs> uh, and, yes. uh, and she wanted to move, you know, closer to home. Uh, and we saw this opportunity to, you know, um, to be able to get outside of, of New York uh, and took it. And it was going to be, you know, probably like a, we thought maybe a short-term thing, like, you know, a year or something. Uh, it became very clear within a couple of weeks of being out of that. It was like, oh no, this is, uh, this is great. We love this. Um, but at the same time, uh, I had never sort of worked remotely. Um, I and, and my partner sort of, uh, we, we were so concerned about like, you know, doing well and, and, and justifying our being outside of the office that we just like totally destroyed the work-life balance in our lives. Like all we did, like I was getting cold sweats watching like Netflix on the couch on a Friday night because the couch was also my office. It's like where I did my work. So it was just this, you know, total, um, messing with my head. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we, we kind of figured it out, right. Figured out a little bit how to actually make like a flexible work life, like actually working from home, changing the rhythms of our days and also kind of decentering work in our lives, um, which a place like New York really centers work in your life. It makes it the absolute focal point. Um, so when the pandemic rolled around, we realized that everyone was kind of speed running our, our experiment. Uh, and we had something to say. So we, um, we did a lot of reporting, um, talked to hundreds of people, uh, and wrote this book. It's called out of, out of office, the, uh, the big problem and bigger promise of working from home. And it's really about like the future of work, but of the future of like work in our lives and like how we can be three-dimensional people. Um, you know, so many people are like, we just devote so much of our time and energy and attention and our best selves to our jobs. And we let other things fall by the wayside. And, you know, as we reported this, we kind of realized that there's, uh, there's legitimately, I, I think there's a lot of hope here. If we can actually truly rethink a little bit of our relationship to it, you know, we've been able as, you know, our process of decentering work in our lives has allowed us to like be more community focused, right? Like yeah. volunteer more, do more things, like have, have ties to organizations and people outside of our jobs. And I think that community life, that emphasis on, you know, like uh, family, friends, community is, is a big part of, you know, what a lot of us are missing and a big part of why, you know, uh, it's, I, a lot of the problems we've talked about have that kind of current running underneath them, right. In, uh, in American yeah. life and culture. And so, and so I think that, I think that there's, there's a way in which this isn't, again, there's no silver bullet here, but uh, we wanted to sort of write a book that showed you know, the ways in which our lives can be richer and more three-dimensional. Yeah. And, and I would say that, that, that sort of balance can only make the work better too. So totally a hundred percent. All right. Uh, sounds great. Last thing, six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. You're the editor of the Galaxy Brain Newsletter. What's one benefit and one cost of the role? Uh, the benefit is that I can publish whatever I want. <laughs> the The cost is that I have less of an ability to have uh, the gut check. <laughs> who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Oh, um, geez. It's a good question. Um, from the reporting side, uh, 
Ben Smith at BuzzFeed was tenacious uh, reporter and from the uh, like the work-life balance side, um, my partner, uh, Annie. Who's one person that you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Um, geez. Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, I think the thing that would really surprise people is that I have recently become friends with all sorts of people in the, uh, in the, the golf media world. I, I'm like, uh, obsessed with golf. So like, really? okay. Yeah. That's funny. Me too. I, I, I'm a big, uh, daily fantasy sports golf fan. Um, who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh, um, Shoshana Wodinski. She writes about advertising technology at Gizmodo. Uh, she's absolutely brilliant. And like, I think she's kind of is, she's working on the stuff that's like the beating heart of why the internet is, is bad, but it's so technical that I, I think she's not getting, she's not getting the, um, the, the love she deserves for it. All right. Last one, one year from today, what is one prediction for the media? I think the, I think we're going to focus a lot on the, importance of the metaverse and i don't think we're i think that that's something that we're, we're at we're on like the the first yard line or that we're on the one we're on the one yard line with that and i think a lot of people think it's gonna it's gonna be there uh we're gonna blink our eyes and live in the metaverse and i think it's gonna take like a decade charlie thank you so much thanks for having me Thanks so much to Charlie Warzel. That was fun. Go subscribe to his newsletter, I guess. That's what we should say here. Uh, and remember, subscribe to my newsletter, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Go to fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download this podcast. Like, rate, review, uh, subscribe all those things on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.